So I was thinking about software development and I I feel like the people who set the tone that kind of high-pitched over enthusiastic tone when it comes to software development and how to do it they tend to be consultants and they go around and they jump into new things and they build them up and they hand them over to someone else and they pass it along and then they do it again and again and again and they they want to they want to get to something quickly and they want to get out and they want to do things in standardized ways because they do them many times over and then they want to hand it off to someone who is familiar with what that kind of thing looks like this is familiar frameworks in a familiar composition and they can sign off and they can move on and i'm not a consultant and i've never been i i build products we build a bunch of products where i work and they all live for an embarrassingly long time i think the worst example we have is one that i think has been <laughs> in the sort of deprecation and retirement phase for much much longer than it was in like active development <laughs> we started building the replacement in 2014 and any day now we should be able to shut it down uh so so product stuff it lives a long time i feel like or i'm starting to wonder if there are other practices out there than those consultants create and talk about those things that focus on starting and getting a familiar stack up and running and stuff like that uh, especially i guess in the web world where i spend most of my time <laughs> and we have a whole different level <laughs> of pieces to stack on top of each other than perhaps anywhere else as a consultant i'm very offended <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i can tell <laughs> so upset yeah as an ex-consultant i'm a bit offended <laughs> reasonable yeah take the middle ground yeah um, exactly i'm the logum i think that's partially partially true and partially it's also a young product thing mm -hmm. because while sometimes like frameworks and standard solutions and yada yada is the result of consultants almost as often i see it be the results of like the startup team yes yeah we're building a startup we want to move fast we grab off the shelf things i think that's a very pragmatic approach as well it's like yeah let's grab django let's grab ruby on rails and just kind of build the standard thing until the we find the parts that are no longer very standard or mm. that don't fit the standard and iterate and iterate and iterate and eventually you have your product which is yeah. probably weird <laughs> yes <laughs> they, they usually are after a long time yeah uh, yeah sometimes I, they're weird after a short time which is the product <laughs> that andreas is working on yep i think that was weird from day one but is partially because it predated the framework that would have made it not weird Mm, uh, mm. I have found <laughs> that in my my main thing as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mainly it was good for the first half a year I worked on it, and then it became bad quite quickly. 
there are apparently ways to architect Elixir applications that's truly cursed. And <laughs> that's what they did that blew <laughs> all the innovation budget on this one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we have an interesting variation in the because my, my main thing is that it's a very old by today's standards React app. And it was built before when we started looking around for how to handle data and <laughs> data flow and state and stuff. And what existed was a was a mailing list post from some Facebook employee about <laughs> I think it was called the Flux architecture at that point. Yeah. Well before Redux. So we built our own. And it if you really, really squint, it kinda look kinda sorta works a bit like Redux. But the interesting thing is that we wrote that that thing, <laughs> that abomination once. And it's never really been a problem. Hmm. Where, whereas we have other stuff, which is also getting old by now, but which followed a much more standardized, at that time at least, React, sort of, I guess, starter architecture, where you have, you have a nice setup for React and Redux and a bunch of other things. And that's a much larger pile of uh, package upgrade problems land. Lots of dependencies, and mm-hmm. I guess the the thing you built yourself is just your dependency, which you own and can do whatever you like with. It doesn't move unless you tell it to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that's that's the thing I'm really wondering about. I think are there people talking and writing and podcasting about how to how to and if you should move products. To like different stages of <laughs> dependencies and stuff like that as they age and mature. Hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about stuff like like gradually decreasing your dependencies. And my thinking is that once you've got the product running and you found out what the weird, exciting stuff in your product is, maybe you should start removing those standardized bits and just do take on your own dependency that does the parts you need. Because my feeling is that it usually isn't everything that the general library does. Yeah. This is an old Andreas favorite. You need a process for removing processes. Yep, garbage collector. <laughs> yeah, in this case, a process for removing uh, dependencies. I think there's a changelog episode with Justin Searles where they talk about this and they talk about dependencies as liabilities. Uh, like code is a liability, a dependency is a liability. So that's an interesting one. There's also a talk by Kent Beck is is the guy. Uh, But I think he talks more about how to manage risk in software development and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, As a side note, he has an amazing talk about design and stuff where Mm -hmm. he mainly grumps around on stage and draws things on a whiteboard (laughs) and stares at the audience. And the content (laughs) is just... So good. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. But yeah, I think it's uh, speaking of old code bases that just keep <laughs> rolling. I have some front end code written in JavaScript using Mithril.js hmm. and Interact.js, which I think mainly was stuff to make drag and drop bearable in Internet Explorer 9 or something. Hmm. And this code is used to. Uh, make the schedule for uh, gaming conventions and it works yeah <laughs> it's so strange uh, b- but there everything is vendored 
Uh, and I don't think I even use NPM. I just put everything in a directory and go. Yeah. Yeah, this was an experiment for me very, very recently. It's probably six months ago or, or so, uh, where I just went, gah, I can't even with NPM yeah. <laughs> and started looking at like, what does it take to actually download NPM packages? Because a normal Phoenix project, when you generate it, has removed NPM as a dependency. Mm, nice. The JavaScript shipped with Phoenix by default is in Elixir modules and Elixir libraries. Mm. And then it's built with ES, bundled with ES build. And there's also Tailwind support, but that's also an Elixir library dealing with it. And that makes for a decently reliable setup. But sometimes I need to install a library. It happens. And I don't want npm for that i don't care about npm i just want the mm. contents of it i barely want the package json i i could skip that yeah uh, it's like it seemed fairly feasible but it has a bit of a long tail and whenever you run into something that has a compile step or weird hooks yeah uh, actually it would be a feature to not run those <laughs> but <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah i mean there are I know there are people who work on like legacy systems or that take a particular interest in kind of saving legacy systems. Yeah. And they have I know there's a common book when you start digging into like what is a legacy system. There's a book which runs the definition that a legacy system is a system that does not have uh, tests. <laughs> because if it has tests, it is by that definition just not a legacy system. It is just a system. Okay. Um, and I think it's just whether whether the system is maintainable. Mm. And tests really help with maintaining mm. and with making changes. And I think that's the that's the key there. Like when you once you have a fairly complex system, the own like if you go into a complex system that does not have any tests or does not have a decent test suite and you try to make changes you're going to break things yeah. at least if it has grown in a sort of averagely normal kind of way mm. where where things just get coupled and messed up and complicated and hard to follow eventually and then the work typically of these people that really dig into legacy systems is that they spend a lot of time just trying to understand the system, add tests that confirm how it works so that they can make changes in the areas they care to change. Yeah, Reopening the black box. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I think that's an interesting and useful definition for people that take on old projects. Like, yes, this is a, a legacy system, but it is only really legacy because it is under, like, it doesn't have good test coverage and people don't know how it works anymore. Yeah, nobody knows how it works. It's hard to maintain. And, like, vendoring your dependencies and all that is uh, pretty much a necessity for, for any sufficiently old system at some point. And I run into the case many times where the only, like... I would have needed to went vendor things and I hadn't 
so I couldn't build the damn mm. thing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> or I at one point I had to dig up the right computer because I knew I had a working node modules. <laughs> yeah. That was not available anymore. Uh. Like one package had been retired and uh, uh something like that. That's glorious. Yeah. <laughs> There's an ancient computer under uh, a desktop uh, in my parents' house that can run Windows 98 and Delphi version 5. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, and also has the complete code base for uh, the uh, time tracking, no, time recording, time, whatever system uh, for dog races. <laughs> uh, that my father built, <laughs> so, and he was like, "I'm never throwing this away. This no. is this is needed." Yeah. Or, well, he was going to rewrite everything in C plus plus rather than uh, sure. Pascal, but but he never did, so yeah. he never threw it away. Have you tried bringing it onto a modern system and just compiling it with? Because there are Pascal compilers. Yeah. Or bringing it into a VM. Yeah, I I should really do that someday. So yeah, I need to do that some someday because that seems nice. Internet archive. Here we go. Uh also uh I think I should uh open source the code and see if anyone <laughs> just does anything with it. It's ancient by now. <laughs> uh also speaking of vendored code, uh since I I'm an ex consultant. I was at a customer a long time ago or a client where uh, the process to get a dependency into the code base or to use a dependency was so long and horrible that everything was written uh, by the internal team. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm frightfully appealed by this. <laughs> <laughs> And <laughs> so it was like, okay, either we can use, for instance, Flask, because it was a Python thing, but that's three months of waiting. Or we can use the built-in uh, Python HTTP web server that's mostly a prototype, it feels like, or felt like at the time, mm. and use that instead and start now. So, yeah, of course, they use the built-in one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's this is when a large standard library becomes important. Yes, super important. And it has I think there's a a golden middle way between these two points. Mm. But I can't find it. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I and I I think that's the thing I feel the most that we should be putting some time into as as a collective to to try to figure out if and where that middle ground might be because i don't hear much enough about people trying to do it and and I'm, i mean i'm so guilty myself as well i i just keep thinking about it and keep being annoyed by all the dependencies but i don't do that much about it either <laughs> no it's kind of weird there is not a lot of like people talk about maintaining systems and maintaining software and mm. stuff, but doesn't feel like it's generally very practical. The, like this is a super practical example of just like 
trying to eliminate the risk of your thing not building and mm. trying to like reduce churn sometimes your like json library or whatever will just change <laughs> and that's not helpful at all <laughs> it's not a useful thing when your json library moves forward at a certain point yeah. at least when you know what your application is but there also there's also the tricky part where so if you rely on React and you might want some of the React performance improvements or yeah. they release a feature that's actually useful and helpful to what you're doing, you want to upgrade. And I don't know about React. I, I presume it doesn't have a ton, ton of the dependencies itself. But um, if you are in a framework and building inside of a framework, the framework has dependencies. And those dependencies will shift, often to support the framework. Yep. But it means things move, and sometimes things that you have used for other reasons in the project will move because your framework moves. Yeah. I'm very, very glad that overall the Elixir community does not churn a lot of code. Uh, at, like the dependencies are fairly stable. Live View is probably the biggest exception, like Live View and NX. But those are pre 1.0 systems uh, still. Fair enough. Um, so they they really haven't pinned down their final uh, firm API. They're still useful, but they do churn a bit. Uh, and even that churn is like well well documented. There's upgrade steps. There's uh, usually good warnings, and you get deprecation warnings way before you need to fix them usually. Hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of support for that i've very often just been able to go hey upgrade and this and upgrade that and upgrade that and uh it just works but there are a few things like upgrading the phoenix the major web, web framework uh and specifically live view that's something I, I typically need to look at the upgrade notes to make sure uh, I keep up, but overall, I'm I'm just so very happy that like there's not a ton of churn, and my dependency list, like the explicit dependency list in the apps, are like maybe twenty dependencies typically. Yeah, and if they grow for a really long time, the project, of course, they'll be higher, but it will be forty, not four hundred. Mm. Uh, <laughs> we started four hundred over. Yeah. And then if you check the transitive dependencies, it'll be more, but it will not be a ton, ton more uh, because uh, it works culturally very differently than, for example, JavaScript. Yeah. But like the, the habit people have in C, like vendoring is pretty much the default if you're doing proprietary software. Mm. Uh, if you're doing more open source type Linux desktop stuff, I guess dynamic linking is the norm, but yeah, yeah. I think our C plus plus code has two dependencies, <laughs> which is pretty pretty appealing. <laughs> and that one just keeps running. Yeah, which is annoying. But it also has. <laughs> there are also always like configuration things to figure out when you want to run it on in a new place. So that's <laughs> sort of an interesting mini version of trying to get everything set up for a modern web project. There's still an embryo of it there, even with the C++ code. 
Yeah. yeah. Like there are projects that are clearly long running in the sense of like they're, they're almost a hundred percent focused on maintenance and just like security and that type of deal, like SQLite and curl and yeah. uh, those types of dependency, other people's dependencies, uh, which we all rely on kind of heavily. Yep. They tend to have uh, very good approaches to longevity and just making it maintainable, keeping it lean, not depending on too many other other things. And uh, that takes a particular kind of discipline and you have to, like a product is a much more sprawling, complicated thing. It's like curl would also be a mess if it needed to have a login system, a way to email your customers when they forgot their password, some monitoring for how curl is performing across all <laughs> devices using it some single sign on perhaps yeah yeah does it have saml <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. can i bring my enterprise <laughs> can i bring my enterprise that's a question you don't want to get as the party host <laughs> oh yeah the new plugin curl oracle for when you need to connect to your Oracle database, but only have the command line. Does Curl have a pricing page with one of those uh, call for pricing? Yeah, absolutely. It, it should have just community edition, uh, free, blah, 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 and then enterprise call for pricing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, it, it's just like you get you get his email. It's perfect. Uh, you get his email in a fat bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess there are support contracts for, for some of this. Like the SQLite folks certainly uh, make, their, make their money off of support and uh, some proprietary extensions. But they are very serious about testing and I don't think they have any dependencies. I think they... <laughs> I think they build anything they want instead of having dependencies. Yeah. Well, the C standard library, I suppose. Yeah, if that. But yes, yes, they do use that. I yeah. Think. It's it's a sneaky dependency because it's very big and it's not very clear on where it starts and ends. It's like the POSIX standard is part of it, kind of-ish. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been a little bit unclear where it's like, oh, is this... Am I in, uh, like, because the standard li library is libc, right? Yep. Yeah, or glibc very often. Um, yeah. But there's also Musil, which is an alternative. Yep, less cursed. Uh, and uh, then, well, well, it has other curses. Absolutely. Um, I, I've heard that it has other curses, but overall it seems very, very nice. But syscalls... Are they in libc or is that a separate thing? Like that's something I've never bothered to learn. I th both, I think. Mm. Yeah, you make your syscalls through libc, right? Y usually. I think you can also do horrible things with assembly code. Or like <laughs> Of course you can do horrible <laughs> things with, through assembly code. That's how computers work. <laughs> Kick the CPU in the right way and it does syscalls. Uh <laughs> 
<laughs> I know way too little about this, I realize. So I can be totally sure about what I say now. Uh, <laughs> Kick it right in a little syscall. Yeah. <laughs> Kick it in the syscall. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Don't take it wrong. It will core dump. Or yeah. Fault. <laughs> yeah, it's got disgusting. Uh, uh, and there's also quite a bit of of like, maybe you won't call the instruction set in the CPU a standard library, right? But there are maybe. parts there to decode H two six four. That's the name of the video thing, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. So it's in hardware. Uh, that's kind of cool. Uh, but also incredibly scary. And in the middle somewhere there, there are blobs of firmware that are way buggier than I would like to imagine. Yeah, Uh, of course. Yeah, which is why we all should run on open source firmware, and it will take a while before we do. Only a few thousand years. Something (laughs) like that. (laughs) What what is that called that they... Put on the CPU for <laughs> for firmware. It's called something particular. Open EFI? No. I'm thinking like bitcode or something. Ah, okay. Yeah, uh, something yeah, like there's something. Microcode? Yeah, microcode is probably the thing. Yeah. Uh yeah. there are some high quality swearing about this in the Oxide and Friends podcast. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's very good <laughs> so podcast. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, firmware is interesting. Accelerators is interesting. Like I, I was recently with uh, a client where they are poking around with nerves and hardware and uh, they had some of these Coral TPUs. So this is a thing that came out of Google and I think Coral is a spin-off company. So it might be an alphabet company, but it's very small if it is. That sells kind of embedded accelerator cards for machine learning. So this is like eight megs of RAM on this thing, <laughs> and uh, a tensor processing unit. So it can do math. It can do math highly parallel, uh, but it can't do much more. So I ran a small like um, object categorization, object detection thing. Uh, from Elixir with TensorFlow Lite. Um, and it was like my MacBook Air M2 did between, I think, 10 and 20. It might have dipped down to, to about five at some point, but milliseconds to process one of these categorizations. And this thing does it in four milliseconds consistently. Wow. That's quick. But it's... Specialized hardware. It's an accelerator. Doesn't the M2 have specialized hardware for that? Yes, but this was doing it straight on CPU. Yeah. Uh, Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And uh, but yeah, I think there are ways to load. Like you could absolutely accelerate a TF Lite uh, model with a mix of the GPU and the neural engine. And I think the neural engine is this type of accelerator, pretty much. Uh, Yeah. That's the way I understand it. But but it's kind of cool. Like coprocessors have been a thing for a long time in computing. I've I've heard people like I was not in computers when uh computers were truly retro. 
like my first computer was a 286 uh, <laughs> so modern <laughs> and i barely understood what i was doing at that point and then i had yeah. a pentium 120 megahertz so Ooh. like fast and played yes. video games and did the windows 95 series with. Um, but at some at certain points it's been like oh I want to do floating point math, so I'm going to get one of those uh, accelerators. And that was like a, an extra card you got, and suddenly your computer was better or could run a program it couldn't before. Yeah. And the, the same with graphics, like which graphics processor you had, what what sound card you had mm-hmm. was a big deal because some games would only support some sound cards and stuff because nothing was standardized. Nope. But... Yeah, like this is very much the same, just that things are a little bit more standard now. Mm. Uh, but not necessarily the accelerators. It's like, oh, you have NVIDIA, then you're doing CUDA. You have, uh, uh, oh, what are they? AMD <laughs> is the <laughs> manufacturer these days, uh, the old ATI cards. Oh, yes. Then you're doing a Rockham, and Rockham sucks. Oh. Uh, and for these things, uh, you do want to have a tf light version of the model and then you're feeding it to this thing uh, so you better have uh, the right software in place it's like it's a much weirder thing than the general purpose computer computing we generally do yeah but it's also much more efficient yeah closer to some kind of metal yeah and the only reason we can do like video viewing on phones is because they have dedicated yeah. silicon for it Otherwise, they would just eat up a uh, battery. Yep. I want to have the text weird, non-standard, and efficient on a t-shirt. Hmm. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to put Erlang on the back? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, floating point, side note. Uh, floating points are so bad at the the rounding of stuff and introducing weird artifacts and so on because they are binary. They aren't decimal. I, I, Someone said this a week ago and I was mind blown. So now I have to tell the world about this. I'm not sure it's correct. Well, that sounds weird. But I hope it is because it's so cool. So uh, floating point numbers are the way they are because it's an efficient way of representing non-integer numbers in computers like you can represent fully decimal numbers with with uh, fractions and a point but that's much less efficient yep but correct yeah but correct but (laughs) with floating point like we've we've worked out ways to do math like i i hate floating point numbers in the way that at certain points, I've tried to see, like, okay, how can you explain sort of the building blocks of computing to people? Like bits, bytes, and then you get into, like, oh, these, this is how we make strings, and this is how numbers work, and this is why hex is popular and useful, um, and this is why you might be seeing 255 so often or 1024. Mm. But the moment you try to go and let's look at a float, everything sucks. 
yeah. <laughs> because it it's very very specialized and very very weird and you can't really visually parse it the way with binary you can actually just learn to kind of unpack it and go yeah okay there's a bit there's a couple of bits there and a couple of bits there but like I'm lost when I'm looking at a float, and it's very, very annoying. I th- I think you need to look at it way more times than you've done so far. Yeah, but because there's like, oh, this is the number bit, and this is the radix, and yada yada. Yeah, exponent uh, and whatever. And enjoy making math out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You you can't look at it and just go, yes, this is the number, one point five. Because you have to do math to get there. Yeah, and one reason might also be because you can't represent 1.5 in floating point. Yeah, it might be 1.5111111111. Exactly. But it will be fast. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry about bringing up floating point numbers. It's very upsetting. Yeah. It is. Starts with someone blaming consultants and then. Floating, <laughs> we get floating Look point what numbers you did to us. <laughs> it's it was a horrible, horrible day. <laughs> and we talked about JavaScript, which did not make anything better. No, 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 it was all downhill. <laughs> yeah. But like, honestly, it's also kind of cool, floating point, because it's, it's an approximation. But it's close enough and it gives pretty much the results you need. You should not use it for bank accounts. You absolutely should not. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting with like people have been trying to make machine learning models more efficient. Well, I just read some research about what was it, an 8 bit LL, 1 bit LLM. But it was actually a 1.58 bit and yada yada ternary something. I don't care. Uh, I thought it was interesting that they were trying for one bit, but it wasn't really. <laughs> I think they redefined bits along the way. So they ended up with two bits and a rounding error. <laughs> so <funny>. they <laughs> they decided that a bit is minus one, zero, or one, uh, which is some ternary thing. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, suddenly Cursed. it's it's very much not one bit in my mind. Nope. <laughs> maybe i'm just very binary yeah yeah it happens it happens uh resist all binaries <laughs> <laughs> but uh no what i've seen is that like i think most models are trained at 16-bit floats and then you can very often kind of it's called quantization but you can quantize them down to like 8-bit floats without losing very much. Uh, but the model becomes eh, well, a lot smaller and takes a lot less memory and a lot less compute to process. And then you can bring them down to, I think you can do 6, actually. But you can also bring them to 4. And here we're starting to see a bit of quality loss because... You're dropping precision is what you're doing. And so it's getting less precise in in what it's representing. And more importantly, like 
the the granularity of all the calculations is just worse. It's like it just covers a smaller range. So it will still generate words for you, but they will be it will be dumber <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> and I've been fiddling around with a really small model and that one is built to be really small, so it isn't quite quantized. So it's like producing high-quality words, but it's always doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and, <sounds> useful. <laughs> well, it's supposed to do the whole uh, have a conversation and call itself Llama, and it's going to be let you be the user and ask questions. Mm-hmm. But it's always going like Lamalita or... <laughs> Lamar or something for its name. And usually it has my part of the conversation as well. Uh, and okay. yeah, like it's just doing dumb shit constantly. Uh, while if I take something like Llama and quantize it down way, way down to fit it on a phone, it's just less good, but it, it, roughly does what it's supposed to but it cuts off randomly and uh, sometimes gets into weird weirder states and just generally performs worse but it is also still tons bigger mm. than the than the tiny uh, built to be small models so it's like you take this 13 gig model and you crunch it down to two yeah essentially which is a heck of a compression. Compression. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so you get a whole different result than if you took something that was built to be small from the start. Yeah. And if you run it on your phone and give it a request, it pauses your podcast. <laughs> or no, it doesn't pause your podcast. It merely uh, stops your podcast from playing because it runs out of resources. <laughs> it's, uh, u- using the system. Properly. Yeah, definitely. Have you tried asking it for a decent cup of tea? Mm. No. Strictly indecent cups of tea. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please never tell me more. <laughs> so since it gives you high quality but wrong answers it will give you an espresso <laughs> makes sense hmm. makes perfect sense <laughs> this is terrible tea <laughs> yeah i know very bitter taste <laughs> it gives you anxiety yeah oh what was the tea we got at the weird restaurant we were at they were kind of doing experiments with vegan Nordic cooking. Ooh. <clears throat> Birch tea. Beach tea. No, it no. was... It might have been um, rutabaga or... Or I mean, tea. how exciting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a... I think it was a root vegetable tea but it's also very weird to call something a tea when you then put it with food in it because that's what i call a soup yeah yeah i think i agree there (laughs) and it's no longer called a tea it's called a stock (laughs) but how did did they serve it like it was a cup of tea no no it was in a bowl okay which does not disqualify a thing from being tea 
But True. if there's a bunch of chunks of vegetable in it, yeah, I think you're. I'm starting to think soup. Yeah, <laughs> especially if it's made from rutabaga. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't think, rutabaga, but it was something along. It, it was very root vegetable. I seem to recall there was a lot of weird stuff in those pieces of food. But. Miso is a bit tea-ish, but not really. Yeah, kinda. There are teas that are. I think isn't it pretty common for like oolong to be served in a bowl? Sounds like a Sounds good familiar. idea. Yeah. I also found an amazing tea in a tea advent calendar. It's like a green tea at the and then uh roasted rice in it. So it tastes oh, of cereal. Good. Oh yeah, I think I've had those at some point. So good. Yeah. We we had some of those when we were in Japan. We bought some ni- really nice tea when we were in Japan. Sweet. Uh, and then we ran out and oh, no. don't remember which ones we liked. Oh no. <laughs> Classic uh, problem. But like proper green tea is a little bit of of a mess because it's like a bunch of work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and technique and stuff. And I like matcha's flavor sometimes. Uh, but there's so many other teas as well. I'm going to drink them all. <laughs> tea tasting time. Yes, for the next tea thousand years. <laughs> tea minus one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>